so I reiterate here, the bill is dead. The story of this great city is about the years before this night. This is Ho Ho Hong Kong. I am Andy Curtin. I'm here with my very good friend. Vivek Mabubani. And we have a great guest today. Pretty excited about this one. I know uh, some of our friends are excited about it. We've got Anthony Dapperan. How you doing, man? Very well, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, if you want to catch me online, you can check me out at Andy Curtin on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Today, just Google Vivek Mabubani. You'll yeah. find something about just me. Just Google it? Yeah, just Google it. Good luck spelling it. I worked on my SEO, my search engine optimization. <laughs> did you better. really? No. <laughs> I know you didn't. <laughs> I figured no one could check if I did. <laughs> there ain't no... Are there, are there any other famous Mabubanis? Uh, there's a Kishore Mabubani who's apparently like a scientist, and people think he's my uncle. And I say, yeah, if it helps me get the gig, sure. You know, if you want his recommendation. Yeah, you can book me at your science fair. Yeah, um, do, you, do you want people to find you online? You got uh, a big Twitter account? Yeah, Twitter at um, AntD, A-N-T-D is probably the best place to find me. That's great. All right. So just the reason we're bringing you on, you know, uh, among other things, is you've you've had a book come out this year, um, City on Fire. And that was uh, your earlier book, I think, was City of Protest, right? In 2017? Yeah, that's right. So after the Umbrella Movement, I wrote my first book, City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent this in Hong Kong. This city is giving you some great content. Yeah, Let's material. be real. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that, that came out in 2017. And then my second book, yeah, City on Fire, Fight for Hong Kong, came out at the, early, at the beginning of this year. Um, Focusing on the events of last year, of course, because I really, um, my first book needed an update after what happened last year. Totally. Yeah. So three years from now, you're going to be calling up your buddies like, hey, uh, are you yeah. guys upset yeah. about anything? It's going to be, you know, we're going to do the whole feng shui thing, city on wood, yeah. Yeah. city <laughs> on you know, earth. All the elements covered. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's it's just great. a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so the, the protests, uh, people, a lot of people obviously know about it and a lot of people know part of it. What I always find is that a lot of people don't know chapter one. Mm. The protests, you know, where it all began. But then, like, things have changed so fast, especially in Hong Kong. You know, like, things like today we get this news, tomorrow we got that news, we forgot, we forgot about yesterday. Mm. It's just a crazy time. Even, like, for comedy, you know, like, even, like everyone is, like, some people came to shows thinking, oh, I want to hear some jokes about the protests to lighten things up. Other people would be like, could we not talk about the protests, please? Could we talk about general? Oh, life? yeah. I remember, actually, that reminds me of when Trump won. And people were doing all this Trump material that was yeah. killing. When Trump won... You couldn't do Trump material. People just did not want to hear about it. Yeah, like, it was because it was too real. Yeah. So before we get too far into the protest stuff, how ha, what's the ch- abridged version of how you ended up in Hong Kong? H- hometown? Uh, hometown Melbourne. Australia. Same here. There yeah. we go. Yeah. So um and uh, yeah, I studied uh, law and Chinese language at Melbourne Uni. Um and then spent two years in Beijing. Um Melbourne Uni's got an exchange program with Beijing University. Um, As a uni student, you were there. Yeah. yeah. So can I ask? Can I ask <laughs> what year? I was there ninety five, ninety six, and then ninety seven. Man, that must have been a so, great wow. time. Yeah. It was pretty different. Yeah. Uh, so that they must have just been coming out of kind of the post period of everyone leaving in the beginning of the nineties, right? Yeah, it was the sort of the post Tiananmen freeze had sort of ended and and, and it was it was uh, sort of starting to open up. It was just sort of, you know, starting to get more foreign investment and starting to modernize. But it was sort of pre WTO. So it was sort of after WTO in two thousand, two thousand and one that started to really boom in the mainland. But those so those years it was still felt Look, it was pre-internet years as well, just to date myself. Um, and it was you felt pretty isolated there. Um, you didn't have, a, you weren't really plugged into the rest of the world as you are these days when you're in China. So yeah, it was pretty different. If you have a VPN. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever cross paths with Darshan? 
I look. I um. My my. I I, no, I asked that. He's at, not as a Chinese person saying how's your Chinese, but actually yeah. he's a buddy of mine. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. I, I I appeared on the same television program as Dashan once, and I lived several doors down the corridor from his former room in the Beijing University dormitories, which oh, is nice. kind of this hallowed site, as you can imagine. You know. Dashan's I I didn't know room. that. Yeah. Yeah. The the Canadian flag sticker is still on the door. At least it was <laughs> back then. That's um, amazing. So yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, so I yeah, like Dashan and I guess many other Chinese speaking foreigners in China at the time, I, I had my fair share of silly appearances on Chinese TV. Um, uh, but then after that, I came to Hong Kong uh, to start work as a, as a lawyer and has sort of been between here and Beijing back and forth pretty much ever since. What moved you to Hong Kong? Like the work itself or you decided I want some change? Yeah, the, the work. Beijing's got to be intense for long periods at yeah, that time, be- right? Beijing's intense now. Fun, yeah. I live, I, mean, I lived there again sort of full time. 2004 to 2010, so sort of in the lead up to and around the Olympics. Um, but I, originally, I had to come to Hong Kong just for the boring technical reasons of getting my legal qualification, my bar yeah. qualification. So I came here and and then worked for a few years here because it's kind of a good place to learn the ropes and sort of you know, uh, you know build you know, start up your professional career. So Probably easier to be a lawyer here than yeah. There, I figured right? I was like yeah. at least you you like you open the book like let me look at page seven on line number seven right and over <laughs> there it's like. Does it feel illegal? Yeah. Because <laughs> it, feel, it, it feels illegal to me, so That's it's illegal, great. isn't it? I need to ask my boss if he's if today yeah, exactly. it's legal yeah, or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and back then, even more so, right? Like in the late 90s, early yeah. 2000s, it was like, yeah, there wasn't a lot of law in the mainland. But um, yeah, so that, that's how I ended up here. And I uh, grew a bit of a passion for the city, I guess. Yeah, although interestingly, because... Uh, because Beijing was sort of my first, second home, if you want to put it that way. Um, and it, for many years, I was going back and forth. And, and I honestly had a lot more passion for Beijing than Hong Kong for, for many years. Um, and the thing that really turned that more than anything else was the umbrella movement. Um, I was back here living in Hong Kong by then, and I was living in Admiralty, not far from where the wow, main umbrella movement like, site yeah. was. And um, and just I was there sort of from the very beginning and sort of, you know, the, the, the tear gas on 20th of September and all that stuff. And I'm there every day and just the spirit of community that built up around that. And that was a time when I really started to get interested and engaged in Hong Kong issues and Hong Kong politics. That was when I, the, probably the first and the legal moment. profession was pretty involved in the early stages of it, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. The legal profession's always been, because a lot of these issues at, at, at dispute or at controversy in Hong Kong are kind of legal issues, whether it's you know constitutional issues of voting or, or rights and freedoms. There's sort of law at their core. So the legal community has always been pretty well engaged. But that was just the umbrella movement was the first time that I really felt connected to the city and, and probably when, if you could say, Hong Kong replaced Beijing in my heart as my second home, I suppose you want to put it that way. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, the umbrella movement, it was interesting because if you went to the sites, like mm. physically went there, you would be surprised people had water they were giving away for free i was like this is not hong kong <laughs> no one's giving away free water how is like someone that. not capitalizing yeah. taking advantage of this capitalist opportunity yeah, yeah i know I, but when i got there i'm like wow, just, just like yeah. branded umbrella water yeah exactly <laughs> right? like, we got sponsored by this guy next to me <laughs> five bottles of vita water no but it was, it was fun yeah and the sense of community was so strong it was, right? you re- strong. It was really welcoming yeah. to, to people from all walks of life and, yeah. and just yeah it was um yeah it was a, it was a really all-embracing spirit and, and culture i think that was 
the one thing I, I a lot of relatives they would read about it in the news and everything, but they would never go down to the sites. And I would right. say, look, it's one thing looking in the news, but going there and, and feeling the whole environment, you're like, wow, mm. this is this is interesting, you know? Yeah. This is like something I've never really felt in Hong Kong. Where says the guy who refuses to go in nature. That's that's that's, <laughs> that's a bit of a double standard. It was all concrete. It was <laughs> highways and people. Best camping in Hong Kong ever, yeah. right? Yeah. Tents on a highway. Exactly. Right? I mean, the one thing you wouldn't find there were potted plants. Nobody brought plants down to the site. That's amazing. Yeah, they were like, we're not going to destroy the plants, you know. Yeah, you yeah. tear gas around. The lack of nature made me feel this is home. So for people that don't know, essentially the issue of the umbrella movement, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but they had, uh, the, the elections weren't going to be free and open for people to, to put them to nominate themselves. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, the screening process going that, on. That's right for the election for the chief executive. But what I didn't realize is they weren't. This was as as a person that I only moved to Beijing uh, to Hong Kong a year ago. So, but they weren't able to vote before, right? Like they weren't right, right. So it was something that had just promised and never happened. Yeah, exactly. So so originally the chief executive was elected by this election committee of sort of the great and the good that were very heavily pro-Beijing. Um, and Beijing had promised that uh, they would allow universal suffrage for election of the chief executive. Um, but when they eventually came up with the model that they would offer for this election to, to, to be provided, um, it still had that committee who became sort of the nominating committee and any of the candidates had to get through that committee and they would only allow two or three people to run. And it wouldn't be a situation where anyone from the community could sort of decide they were going to run in this race. And it was you know, pre-screening the candidates. And so people were protesting and saying, we want genuine, open, free and fair elections for this for this chief executive. But um, yeah, Beijing didn't allow that. And at that point, because you've, can I say journalists, like you've, you've published a lot of articles? Yeah, 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 yeah writer, journalist. And was that yeah. what kind of led you to being an author? Did yeah, you see it, yourself as being an author before that? Yeah, no, um, look, I'd always been interested in, in writing and, and always sort of, thought I would like to pursue that more, but it was certainly the umbrella movement that um, gave me the opportunity to do that. And certainly when I started writing more and led to my first book and which sort of then led to eventually, yeah, pivoting to, to stopping lawyering altogether and, and just doing writing full time. So, yeah. I mean, my motivation, I, I've written before for some online magazines and the real motivation was not so much about I want to be an author or like a journalist. It was more like they were like, we'll pay you by the word. I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> Wait, what? You mean like <laughs> ofs and does get counted? Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm writing again. Today. Yeah, I, I went against every comedic instinct of like edit until it's as simple as possible. Just like, verbose. No. It's like opposite <laughs> to comedy. Yeah, exactly. Just everything. Adding as many words as possible. Yeah, exactly. just exaggerate or explain stuff that you're like, we know what that means. An like, umbrella yeah, an is umbrella. like a curvature. Yeah, reminding me of the times <laughs> when it was raining and I didn't have one. You know, and it, it symbolizes the, the blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> so is, would it be fair to say it sounds like this is something we talk about a lot is mm. like there was a secondary personal story of yeah. you finding your way to your passion project. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, I I had a, a pretty long career in the, in the law and reached the point where I thought there wasn't much new to, to experience in that at the same time as I was getting more and more interested in, in, in the writing and, and, and just the issues that were engaging me in Hong Kong. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was sort of a gradual transition over a number of years. But, um, yeah, certainly that was the case. I guess it was just so vivid. I mean, like telling people about the story itself. I mean, the whole umbrella movement was just such an interesting. Were you thing. as involved in the umbrella movement as you were the most recent? I wouldn't one? say I was as involved. I mean, I wouldn't be camping overnight at the sites. 
but I'd be there doing the <laughs> that's daytime. You, that's you and outdoors. Like, yeah, that's like, I don't even care if this is the most passionate thing I feel yeah, about. I'm not staying grain. in a tent. Yeah, I'm like, wait, a <laughs> tent is used in the wild. I can't be associated with so the wild. So the bait water strategy was like your bait. You're yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. get to go home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, the, the fun thing is that you never get bored of it. Like, So the umbrella movement, I, I was joking with a friend before. I'm like, it's such a Hong Kong thing that so they were worried long. people get wor- bored of it. <laughs> so we had three sites, Mong Kok, Causeway Bay. So it's like a convenience factor. Like, hey, you can't be like, oh, I live in Kowloon. Nope, we got Mong Kok for you. <laughs> you can't be like, ah, I, it's too late. There's no under, uh, there's no tra- travel and stuff. No, no, no. Where do you live? Where do you live? Causeway Bay is easy. It's near the harbor. You have all that stuff. Yeah, and then it's like, of course, they had the, the, the speeches from the podium. Then there'd be people like, you know, yeah. singing Random songs. Rumming, yeah. There'd be like a cinema screening. And yeah. there'd be like all these little arts and crafts. Yeah. Well, they yeah. set it up so students can you study there. You tutorial right? centers. I think like you mentioned literally that the book, benches yeah. with yeah. tutors. People come volunteer as tutors to kind of teach kids Which after like, school. Which is like, this will keep them here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our parents are like, you can't Further focus. Further your what, career. Free, free yeah. tutoring? He'll okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in that case, uh, yay, we want Universal Suffrage too. I'll yeah, see you at yeah, I'll buy some umbrellas. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> after the whole thing, parents are like, this is really good. I want to protest more. This is helping my kids. You know, the grades are improving. Yeah, I don't know if that really worked out for many of them. So it was ultimately unsuccessful, though, right? I mean, that was the... Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the government just refused to come to the table at all. C.Y. Leung was a So unlike the Beijing as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're so I mean, famed they actually, for their compromise. The weirdest thing is they actually did have the meeting with the, you could say, the movement leaders. Mm. So they had them, they sat there, you could see... So the there were there. elements of victory, right? Uh, Well, no, there were elements of we will listen to you. Yeah, um, but it was clear like we don't have to listen to you, but we'll sure we'll do a show. We'll shake your hands, and if you you go to jail after that, mm. and yeah, these guys went to jail, and it was like there you go. So no, nothing happened. So the idea really was that more for show. That fine, you want to talk? Let's talk. So having a leader taught everyone like oh, so then they're going to prosecute the leaders, and then done. The whole movement fades out. You know, if your leaders are, are caught or, or arrested or in jail, you don't know where to go, right? You're a head- headless chicken running around then. So that was the idea. But I think, like you said, the, the interesting thing is that all the arts and creative thinking mm. all started coming out. People were shocked because there was a whole thing about before where the old generation were mocking the new generation, saying they're soft, they're on their phones all the time, you know, what they call fighting, which is like a wasted youth. And they were like, oh, these kids are going to have no future. They have no courage. They can't do anything. They're just weak. You know, and when the umbrella umbrella movement started, it was just like, whoa, the creativity level. Like, no one would have imagined that level of creativity in a place like Hong Kong, right? And no one would imagine you'd have podiums coming up and people just saying stuff, singing songs, whatever. You'd be like, people can sing here? I never knew that. Or, you know, people watching movies, like, literally sitting around, crowding around happily next to strangers on the roadside without a mat. It's like, you wouldn't even sit. People put newspapers on the MTR train seats. So they got, don't get the germs over there. But here it's like, fine, you know, it's pavement. I'll sit over there. So it was a really bizarre moment that you're like, wow, Hong Kong's really, really multifaceted. Hmm. Right? And that's what I think blew a lot of people's minds away. Yeah, I mean, I, I now look back on the umbrella movement um, as being important, firstly, as a cultural movement yeah. rather than a political movement. Um, and then secondly, because of the lessons that all the protesters took from it into yes. last year's movement and, and how it sort of was another milestone in this ongoing path of, of dissent and protest in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, the cultural aspect just really stands out as something quite special. Yeah. Did, did you take anyone to the uh, umbrella movement protest? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I ha- happened to have family coming and visiting from Australia at the time. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, took them down to, to visit the Took a few and, dates yeah. down there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah Went down with my helper. Yeah. Find took a the dog for corner. a walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, because I was living nearby, I would walk 
to and from work every day through by. through the site, which sort of became my commute, which was a really nice nice way to, <laughs> to start the day, start and end the day. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what for both of you? Here's a question: Like, how successful was the most recent protest? Really, it's really hard to say successful. I mean, it's, I can't really say it's a success, but in its own weird ways, it's brought a lot of things together. One of the highlights for myself, or at least that people would notice in my community, was uh, October twentieth last year when they had the illegal march in Chimsai Choiside mm. and they were supposed to have the uh, attacking of Chungking Mansions and then ended up having the cops spraying the mosque. Mm. That one Oh was, yeah, with the yeah. blue stuff or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the blue, the, what they thought was anti-disinfectant, I mean disinfectant, but turns out it was just like wrong to do uh, to a mosque. Uh, that was a moment basically that what they call the We Connect moment. So We Connect used to be Carrie Lam's slogan when she was campaigning, you know, when she did the whole show, of, oh, I'm going to try to win when she knew she was going to win, right? Mm. So We Connect was her slogan, clearly had no, there was no creativity in that. Oh, not even grammatically correct. We, we Connect what? <laughs> Nobody knows, right? Anyway, so that was basically the, there were rumors that people were going to attack Chunking Mansions because Jimmy Shum was attacked a few days ago by triads and mobs or whatever, right? apparently might have been South Asians. And so suddenly the whole protest movement... Right, so like, people thought South Asians might be a problem. Yeah, let's take revenge on them. And obviously Chunking Mansion is a really good representation of South Asian community. <laughs> so like, let's attack Chunking Mansions. And so a bunch of us were talking and we were like, no, this we don't believe this is how, what people are thinking. So how about we stand outside Chunking Mansion and show that we're not afraid, we're not going to... And you did that. Man. I was one of the people that were discussing in the group. I believe you were the head of it. Uh, no, no, <laughs> just kidding. For safety reasons. No, actually, no. I wasn't. I, honestly, I wasn't the head. I would, I would, I would take full credit. No, no, no. I'm just being a dick. No, but basically, so we would say, let's just stand outside, you know, show solidarity and also let people know, Chunky Mansion's still open. We trust you guys. Come on in. We, we don't, There's no fear. And eventually became like this thing of like... I mean, you should definitely be afraid of chunking Mansion's, let's be honest. Oddly here. enough, it was reverse, right? Mm-hmm. Normally, people are like, I don't want to go in. Everyone's like, let's go in. Right. That's the so, safe day. And you're yeah. giving out water to protesters yeah, and yeah. stuff so as well. Yeah, yeah. The water thing yeah. was just like another small idea that some guy, one of, one of the guys in the groups had, and say, let's just give out water. And people walking by give out water. It's a nice gesture. And that turned into a big symbolic thing. Mm. You know, just the idea of like exchanging water bottles. And, you know, people would come up, not because they needed water. They would have their own water bottle, but they wanted to just have that, that moment. Of, you know, I take your water and we kind of like we're friends. Like, go to someone's house, you know, when you're a guest. Hey, you want some water? Get a glass of water, stuff like that. And that became a big thing. All of a sudden now, the South Asian ethnic minority, whatever, was no longer your ethnic minority. Everyone's like, you're a Hong Konger now. You know, the whole... All these years. All All these these years. years. All these years of all those (laughs) carnivals you would have, you know, the (laughs) Harmony Carnivals. Let's look at some Indian guy dance on stage. Give people water. Yeah, How much yeah. money did you spend? Yeah, yeah, it was nothing, right? <laughs> and it was just bizarre. Like we didn't expect that. We thought it was just a nice gesture, and then that happened. It was like super. It was. It's so weird because like it was so positive, right? Like till around two, three p.m. And then of course the tear gas started uh, down in Chipset Street Police mm. Station, right? Because it had to. And then we were like, well, never mind. You know, people are still safe. It's all good. And then the whole moss spraying thing happens. I'm like, well, there you go. That that the headline's gone now. You know, mm. these guys are going to be the headlines. So so much for our little water gesture. Right, but that was, I think, to my to me, a success. Yeah, and people still remember. It was certainly oh, made a big impression at the time. Very yeah. big. I mean, yeah. to the point, like before the NSL schools were inviting people like myself to come and talk about that day. Be like, what were you guys thinking? What happened? Tell us more. It was really, really special. So NSL mean that schools were like, we can't have you mention this ever again. They don't even know what happened. They're like, what happened last year? Yeah. They're like, what? What? Yeah. yeah. Do you feel the protests were a success? Um. It's a complicated question. I mean, obviously, 
on the at the beginning they were a success. The extradition law was stopped, but it, they also ultimately provoked this and even national worse security law. law, which is that plus yeah. plus plus, yeah. you know, worse than probably anything could even anyone could have imagined, sort of as the worst possible outcome. Um, on the one hand, again, they were a success because they prompted this incredible landslide victory for the, the pro-democracy parties in the district council election last year. But then turn it around, the government's now you know postponed the LegCo election and going to do everything they can, it looks like, to manipulate that so that they don't the Democrats don't reproduce the same kind of victory again in, in terms of the, the elections. Um, but I, I think that the, the thing that really stands out to me, notwithstanding the very obvious... Um, the, the, the very obvious bad stuff that was, to put, put it pretty bluntly, the outcome of last year is two things. Firstly, um, the events of last year really have put Hong Kong in the forefront of sort of the global mind and the global conversation. Um, certainly, they uh, 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 Hong Kong has become um, a little bit caught up in sort of the at the front line between the US and China, but it, it also has, I think, helped to bring the world's attention to the role of, of Chinese government influence around the world. So I think I think oh, Hong Kong, like in Australia, it was just exactly yeah. yeah. And so they Hong were Kong, so think, ready to talk about it finally. Yeah, yeah. It was re- it really played a pivotal role in the events of the last year or two, you know, alongside COVID as well. But I think Hong Kong came first and really sparked that whole discussion. Um, and then the other thing, sort of the second positive outcome from last year, or you want to call it a, a success or a victory, um, is the the building of this this community spirit and, and what you were just talking about in terms of the the, the integ- not integrating but you know welcoming Hong Kong's ethnic yeah. minority communities as to feeling part of Hong Kongers but yeah. what other people have called this kind of nation building in Hong Kong and we're not talking about Hong Kong independence just to be very clear but about the, the sense of a unique Hong Kong identity and I felt that was really reinforced and built upon and made more inclusive um, and just made even stronger in the course of the events of last year. And look, at the end of the day, national security law or not, the the two million people who are on the streets protesting last year um, are all still here. Um, and they still, I don't think anything's changed about the way they feel about those underlying values and, and the things Not all of them are still here. Problems. Well, a few have left. But all right, so <laughs> one Some of them are in Shenzhen. 1.99 minus 12, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I think that that's been a, 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 an important step in this ongoing development of a Hong Kong identity, and I think, as I say, it's not it's not over. I had this thought the other day that, like, just reading your book, I was thinking that you know, living in mainland China, it's like so frustrating that you're just never going to get people to see the Chinese government for any of the negative things that it does, but part of that is that they're just not exposed to it at all, and they're exposed to so much that will discredit any hint. Of, of a wrongdoing by the Chinese government. But that strategy works when you're able to fully control what they're getting. But in Hong Kong, like the cat's out of the bag. Like people already have the perception of the government. You can't reverse it by controlling the internet or anything like that. Yeah. So it's a different situation where for sure there are people in the mainland that have, you know, a, a, a negative perspective and they don't want to talk about it. But I think for the vast majority of people, they don't really think the government is a bad thing. Whereas like here, uh, there's this sort of, how long can you keep that under wraps? You know, how long can you just tell people, how can, how long can you use fear to get people to shut up? I mean, like yeah. that's also a Hong Kong thing, right? Like we just generally don't like authority. Like right. nobody Dude, likes that's Australia is like that. Like yeah. our heroes, like Ned Kelly, yeah. you know, <laughs> the, the, the whole concept of... yeah. Um, I think it's just over here because, like, see, the Hong Kong mentality has always been like, you're better than me. 
it's always like a lot of that right so it's like when you have someone who's up there doing stuff you're like you can't even how much are you getting paid like literally the biggest argument was the chief executive gets paid like half a million hong kong dollars a month and she's doing what you know and just like I could do that for half the money. Like I'm happy. <laughs> like how I could screw fired? the job up for way less. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, I'm like I could do that. Right? Everyone's just complaining. They're like, how much was she getting paid for? What and doing what? Like that's not right. I mean, I'll face press every day, no problem. I don't really care. I just ignore the questions. So stuff like that, you know. Um, I, I would say that and the umbrella movement, the teaching we learned from that, and also, so this is the craziest thing. I keep saying this. All the stuff really happened because the first protest with one million people marching. It was really simple. We want the extradition bill to be withdrawn, right? So you see a million people out of seven point something million people in Hong Kong on the streets. You know, a general person will think, you know what, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this bill. Especially when it's <laughs> such a massive percentage of the people in the city. Yeah, right? <laughs> like maybe, you know, okay, let, let's say we still want to do the bill. How about we be smart? Let, let's take a week off. You know, let's maybe say, okay, you know what, we'll reconsider it a bit and all that. 11 something p.m. that night she comes out with a statement saying like okay people came out that's great the bill will be continuing this tuesday i'm like what it was like a gigantic middle finger to yeah, the whole city it was right? exactly it was, yeah. like you could see the whole because i was still outside <laughs> yeah. around 11 and you could see 11 something of some people are like getting up i was actually where what they call bodai which is like the legco uh complex mm. i was there and you could see 11 some people like suddenly getting up and something like what what's going on why did the move suddenly because Honestly, the first protest, everyone was like, hey, you know what? A million people, dude. Like, I think we did it. Like, this is the biggest number we've ever had. Like, clearly. We've That's got to right. do something. Yeah, yeah it's got to do something. And then you get the statement saying like, yeah, no, nothing's changing. We're doing what we're going to do. Everyone's like, what? I think that was the one thing where I'm like, all right, this was the mistake. This was the breaking yeah. point of like, Hachi just said, you know what? We'll come back to this next week. We'll reconsider. Yeah, go back yeah. to the drawing board. Everyone, yeah. everyone literally would go home like, all right, job done. Got to go to work tomorrow. It's a <laughs> well, day. I mean, yeah. as, so as a non-Chinese person, you know, my, my first thought is there's that element of losing face. Like, was she even in a position where she could back down? I like, think if you know Carrie Lam from her previous experience and everything, she's a very uh, uh, rigid person, as in like she's very uh, thick-skinned and also very like she won't bend, right? Mm. Yeah, from what you what I've read about her, heard about her from before. So yeah, but like, I mean to play devil's advocate to that, she didn't bend and she won. Like, well, I mean the system won. She didn't win. She be, yeah, but I mean, like, she's yeah. the chief executive. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, I admit that. So, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying this because I think it's a good thing, but like, let's be realistic yeah. about this. Is like, yeah, well, I mean, they the, got the better outcome than they started trying to get. Yeah, but I mean, Hong Kong is clearly not a normal polity, yeah. right? It's not a normal democratic system where the where the pe- that government is answerable to the people. At the end of the day, it's you know, Beijing calls all the shots. Yeah. yeah at the end of the day, from Beijing's point of view, if they if there's a a point that they're not going to waver on, they can carry on until, you know, the whole city burns to the ground, you know, yeah. and, which it looked like they were going to do at a certain sure. point last year, Definitely, right? Definitely, yeah. And they don't care because well, at the end of the day, what's 7, seven million yeah. people out of 1.4 billion? So, you know, it's not it's not, it's not a normal yeah. it's not a normal dynamic. Yeah. Um, so what what's the situation yeah. now? Like where where are we at? I don't know how you feel. I mean, I feel now in a, in a certain way, it feels a lot like what it felt after the umbrella movement, yeah, right? I people would say. are dispirited, a bit depressed. Feel like okay, we and people felt this way after the umbrella movement too. We gave it it all. We gave it our all. We did, don't think there's anything more we could do. And still, the governments ignored us and it's sort of you know squashing us and pushing us away. And there were no avenues left. And in the years after the umbrella movement, people would say to me, in fact, my first book was called City of Protest. And people would say to me, you know, kind of, huh, City of Protest. Huh? Well, look, you know, Hong Kong now, would you still call it City of Protest? And, and came, I, and came I would back with a vengeance. And I would, say, no, I would say it back then. I said, look, you know, all the underlying factors and 
you know, that the city hasn't changed, the people haven't changed, and it's just going to take the next trigger for it to happen again. And, and indeed, it did last year. And so I think we're in that same mode of sort of regrouping and, and reflecting and, and, yeah, mourning a little bit the things that have been lost. But I think that the underlying spirit will still be there. And um, it'll, you know, whether it's five years' time or whenever, something's going to come back yeah. again. But I don't know, how, yeah, how do you feel? No, I think the same thing as well. I mean, right now we're in this little phase of like, okay, regroup, rethink, because the situation has been so so surprising. Like, honestly, the, the NSL, the national security law, it was such a surprising factor. We're like, whoa, okay, this is a completely new concept. Like, we need to rethink our strategy now, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, I felt like it just they just went, you know what, we were going to take 10 years to do this, let's make it three. Yeah, but you also... Know, whatever, they just they just sped the... It wasn't like that NSL wasn't coming at some point. Yeah, but I mean, there's, you two, know. there's two sides to look at it. So it's really interesting where, yeah, you can say they sped it up. Instead of waiting until, let's say, 2047 or, you know, in the next 10 years, they did it this year, right? Now, at the same time, I always feel that sometimes when you speed things up too much, it has a, has a backfire effect. And I do not forget that five years ago... Everyone was much younger. No one had the power to be like, you know, working. I was older five years ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, w- I, work, I work in reality. <laughs> so five years later, everyone's going to be five years more mature or maybe more successful or maybe more integrated into society in generally all different aspects. Do not, like, I'll give you an example. Like, it's kind of like saying five years ago, the comedy scene in Hong Kong was really different from, let's say, what it is now. Like, five years ago, you'd have... By the way, this is the only reference point we have. Yeah, yeah, we're comedians. We always end up in the framework. (laughs) I mean, my material five years ago was not Comedy Central It's kind of like a knock-knock joke, really. Yeah, 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 exactly, you know. (laughs) And it's just that five years ago, who's there is, like, illegal. (laughs) But, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right, Anthony, as in, like, we're in this dormant period where we're kind of like, okay, you know what, let's just take it easy. Everyone's a bit yeah disheartened, for sure. I can tell, you know, like certain anniversaries everyone's a bit like ah you know forget it like halloween halloween's another good example of telling people like how crazy the city can be mm-hmm. so last year halloween everyone's out mm-hmm. right but everyone's out for really different reasons normally the dressing up and everything but it was a fantastic time you got the anti-mask ban and we can wear masks oh this is this is the golden opportunity right so everyone's come out it was a crazy time if you were down there you would be like what is going on Right, you've got cops on Linda's terrace and stuff like that, just ready to fight and everything. Mm. And then this year, Halloween, everyone's like, "Yeah, what happened? No, nobody, nobody cares." Did Halloween happen? We don't really care, you know. So it's kind of like the anniversary, the opportunity didn't really work out because we're like, "Well, no, this is not the strategy." Mm. Because Halloween was big night this year. It was big, but it wasn't last year big. Last really? Year, they shut down Lan Kwai Fong, dude. I remember we were, we had we the yeah, California yeah. town. We we weren't operating in that point. But I remember how bad it was, and I remember the, the significance for the venue, the bars and stuff last year was that they'd been hit so bad by the protests that, you know, Halloween's one of the biggest earning nights of the year. Yeah. They were like, this is our night to make some money back. Yeah. And then there was, I don't want to say who, but there was stories of certain landlords being complicit in letting the police kind of take the night away from them. Alan yeah, Zeman. Yeah. I think you can say Alan Zeman. I'm not yeah, saying yeah, Alan yeah. Zeman. That's not, <laughs> not definitely yeah. not saying that. So I'm, I'm like, <laughs> what, I'll put, what I would say, the next book you write, you're going to have a lot more, I mean, with the, with the City on Fire and stuff book that you had, you've mm-hmm. talked about the protest, but I think in five years' time, there'll be a lot more uh, evolution in the sense the game won't only be more more a surface of visual it's going to be in, in te- integral to mm. society like for example the district council elections yeah. let's be very honest people came out to vote not because they wanted to win but it was more like a, this is my middle finger back to you yeah. right I, I woke up first thing in the morning 7am I was out and about I'm like I never wake up that hour 
Like, I cannot believe to vote at something that I could vote throughout the whole day. I woke up this early to do it. Right. <laughs> and look, I was going to say, it's the first time I ever voted in a district council election. Yeah. I mean, whoever sort of knew the district councils existed really yeah, before, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, before yeah. last year, and suddenly everyone's paying attention to yeah, them. Yeah, because I mean, like, what are they going to change? The potted plants on the streets? I mean, like, it's not really a big impact, but it's more like a, let me show you my voice. And, and, I, and I feel like that, that the district council elections and also tied with this other sort of post-umbrella movement thing of the grassroots getting more engaged, and you can certainly feel... Um, at, at least in certain districts, that that there's kind of a yellow district mentality yeah, growing yeah, up yeah. around certain areas. I mean, I, I live sort of in Western District around Sangpoon, where you know there's all the district councillors are yellow, and there's a, a lively, vibrant um, street culture and sort of a local heritage that that combines to sort of create this really um, yeah powerful gro- yeah. Gro- gro- grassroots movement around a local identity and a Hong Kong identity, which sort of feeds also into the the pro democracy yeah. movement as well. Um, and I think we're seeing that in a lot of different uh, districts around town. Now, at this moment, I'd like to clarify to all our international listeners when we say yellow. Yeah, I was about to say the same. It's a political <laughs> color. They're like pretty yellow yeah. po- okay. politicians. Look at these three non-Chinese guys talking about yellow people in Hong Kong. So yellow is the pro-democracy. Blue camp is the pro-Beijing camp. So just to clarify. Yeah, good, okay, please you. do not get upset. I'll edit that part out. Yeah, don't subscribe yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's a question that I, I have. Uh, a it's easy to say that the movement doesn't have leaders, but it needs leaders. Mm. Is there a concern that they are still, with all the surveillance, able to pick off the leaders? Like, how many leaders can you lose? Yeah, I mean, certainly they are, they are trying to pick off the, 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 the prominent activist leaders and also i mean this is a strategy they roll out everywhere yeah you take you, yeah. you cut off anybody that's causing trouble and eventually there's yeah. no more trouble yeah and, and also they're, they're they're clearly trying to sort of decapitate the pro-democracy parties inside legco as well so that the more prominent leaders are, are, are around the on the who are involved in sort of the official politics as opposed to the street politics and then the other thing they're doing is effectively sending people into exile and this is another classic tactic of of the government in beijing that sort of once dissidents go into exile overseas they pretty quickly become irrelevant Irrelevant, become out of sight out of mind so i think that they are doing what they can to target um anyone not only who sort of is is leading but sort of anyone actively organizing so you if you if you run a, a Facebook group that they don't like, you know the Facebook group admins are the ones that are getting arrested, or the Telegram group admins are sort of being targeted. So any any it starts to make it um, personally risky for people to engage in organizing in community organizing. Um, and yeah, it's sort of they're trying to intimidate. I mean, that's what I thought is like with the NSL. I thought this has got to get to a point where people just can't risk their 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 life anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like you're you're slowly p- putting people in the cage, like, mm. and you get used to the cage. Like they have that saying, right? A bird that's always been inside a cage looks at other birds, thinking, "Why would you want to fly around? Mm. This is fantastic. You know, things are good already over here." So, in the same way with the NSL, you slowly get used to it. That's the idea, right? They slowly wear you down. You're like, "Well, you know what?" And the vagueness right. of it as well. Yeah, and we're all. I think we're all in in this early period where you know the law hasn't really been tested. So there's these vague, sort of woolly, broad 
provisions of the law out there, but they haven't yet gone through a court process where the courts have sort of laid down clear lines of what is and isn't acceptable. And, and government, the government and the police are, I think, taking advantage of that to try and push the envelope and arrest people for having you know blank pieces of paper or whatever, you know, ridiculous stuff like this. So, um, yeah, it's a climate of fear and, and uncertainty. Have they been successful at, at, at so using no, it? No, like, I know they've they've arrested people on the basis of a violation of the NSL, but yeah. have those people been successfully prosecuted? No, so the, the, the trials haven't haven't gone all the way through yet. So um, we, don't, we don't know yet. So what, what, but I think yeah. there's more, more to strike a fear, right? It's yeah. kind of like you say this, but, you're no, get But that. also, like, my experience, in, they do this in Russia as well, but also in mainland China, is, like, y- you have the law in a vague way, and then the application, everyone's like, oh, this is how it works. But then when they change their mind, they just change how they apply it. Yeah. So yeah. there really is no protection. Yeah. I mean, like, it's kind of like at a comedy show, you make fun of the... the what? This is like the comedy club getting shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's that but as well. I mean, yeah. like, worry of what people will say. And also, it's like, let's say you go to a comedy club, you get booked for the gig, and you make fun of the owner, right? Mm. And then the owner gets pissed off, and then you never get booked again for the gig. So everyone mm. else is like, yeah, let's not make fun of the owner. Mm. I want to get this I feel, gig, like, you know? I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> your, your club's gone, dude. <laughs> so you I'm never up, booking you, you again. Yeah, that's you, it. You want up to be in that one. <laughs> Do you feel at risk having written a book that's, you know, in favorable to the movement? Um, look, I, I don't, um, mainly because I'm not engaged in those kind of activities that they seem to be targeting. I'm not an organizer or an activist or, uh, you know, I'm not involved in... Yeah, sort of at the front lines of any of the movement. I just sort of observe and report on and, and, and sort of analyze and comment on what's been going on. Um, and I don't think, or at least I hope, we haven't yet reached the point in Hong Kong where people are at risk just simply for, for what they say or for, for criticizing the government um, as opposed to advocating actively for, for things like you know, secession and things like that that they're, that they're targeting. So, look, obviously I'm... I'm um, you know, wary and 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 careful, and sort of keeping an eye on on changes in the environment. But I'd, I'd like to think that there's still scope for for people to write and comment and and well, criticize. Well, I mean, nothing's stopping you from one day having a revised edition of your book, a revised as in like the safer version. <laughs> city of no protests. Yes. <laughs> yes. City of candle. Yeah. <laughs> city very calm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but look, I, mean, I also recognize that you know I'm in a privileged position as a as a you know foreign citizen who you know if needs can be, get the fuck out can well yeah hopefully if, if needs be can can leave and there are a lot of people who don't have that privilege and have risked a hell of a lot more than i have um and so yeah um yeah i don't I, yeah i i don't feel uh, like yeah i'm at the forefront of this so. i think i think right now honestly especially with number one english as a factor number two also like unless you are big because it's author, in english it's less of a concern i guess the uh, impact is like comedy i mean honestly the english comedy scene i'm pretty confident the government's going to crack down on you after they crack down on the bigger guys like the, mm. the more famous comedian like if anyone it's not gonna, what happened in mainland china they came after us first really yeah wow maybe you were, were you nearby was it just convenient? Were they driving by and your punchline just came out? I mean, you can guess, but yeah. you never know. Yeah. But certainly, I, I, we, I we mean, had more international media coverage. Yeah. You know, maybe we had, we had less were, government connections. Maybe than, you guys than, just funnier there and people noticing it more. Here, the punchlines aren't so strong. So everyone's like, yeah, we'll let that slide. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I you know, I, 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 to be honest with you, I think that the English scene has a, 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 a life of counted in, you know, single yeah. digits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, 
Good that would you. be that would be my guess. I guess. Well, I, I, let sorry me to bring way. the fucking yeah, yeah. gloom like, out of it. I'm like, I was just like, you're killing every optim, optimi- optimism I had. Like, you know, the scene here is good. You're like, no, not. Like, okay. I but, love the scene is amazing. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's one of those things where it's like the bigger you get, the more likely you're gonna get done. Yeah, that and hence the reason why, in its own weird way, you know, having the underground scene of comedy is actually a good thing. I mean, like I'll put it this way: with books and everything, if anything, the government targeted. They they did they they removed books in libraries, right? Joshua Wong's books and everything. Yeah, yeah, books written by people like Joshua Wong. And yeah, Tanya so the Chan, bigger, more so prominent yeah. names. I would say that that's the first more symbolic because let's be very honest: that the general community would know those guys, hmm. they would know those books, and that would be newsworthy and have. Yeah, an I'm, my understanding of the mentality of sort of the cultural bureaus in the mainland is it's like the loudest voices are the ones that need to be policed the most, which makes sense. Yeah. Like you get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing they're concerned about is people who organize or sort of form connections in any way, whether it's, you know, events or festivals or, or you know, people that link up different parts of the community to form any form of alternative organization, any form of civil society that's not, the government or not government directed is is something they they yeah you know what if i had to give be given honest uh answers to why i thought the english was killed first and and killed in entirely killed like you cannot get licensing for english comedy in the mainland anymore but chinese you can and i think two reasons number one they probably felt the english was harder to control Mm. and number two they didn't see any value in it whatsoever there's no cultural value in it and, and what they said explicitly was uh, there was a concern of foreign ideas infiltrating. Mm. Okay. Whereas, like, it's in Chinese. We can hear what it is. You know, it's the arts. You know, we, we, we've got some mandates that we're filling by promoting the arts if we yeah. can control it. Wow. Do they have translators in mainland China? I mean, it's always been ridiculous. Like, we would submit scripts that were translated into Chinese and we would just change any problematic words. And then they would send people to check on it that didn't speak English. Uh. And they'd stay for 10 minutes and be like, well, yeah, turns out I still can't understand English. Yeah. And then leave. (laughs) (laughs) Those English comedy scripts translated into Chinese must just be the least funny (laughs) documents ever. Some of the stuff. (laughs) I remember Eddie Izzard had a, he wanted his script. He had, everything was fine except he had a joke about a monk self-immolating. I'm like, can we cut that joke? Yeah. Just that one joke, How you know? Translate. Yeah, monk, a guy, <laughs> yeah, self-immolating, yeah. feeling very yeah. hot. Yeah, bald man. Yeah, you don't want to do that. So uh, let me ask you, Nancy, like, where do you see, let's say, in the next five years? Do you have an idea? Thing, like, yeah, what's yeah, the future? That's what yeah, I want to like, know. What's your thing? Because like, every year the wave gets crazier, right? Yeah. So what do you, what do you, what do you expect yeah, I mean, there's yeah. Certainly, every protest movement has built upon the last, yeah. and the high point of one has kind of become the baseline for the other, which sort of leads to the immediate question: the, the next time we have a big protest in Hong Kong, does it go straight to Molotov cocktails? And, yeah. You know, um, Was there a protest before the Umbrella Movement that you felt impacted that one? Because uh, I didn't realize that you, no, in your book you said 1.5 million people protested Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Which yeah. I was like, wow! Did, did you know that? I don't know how the number. One point five yeah, million yeah. people protested. I didn't realize the number. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. big. It was big. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was there was the Joshua Wong and scholarism and the national education movement, sort of in 2011, 2012, which which sort of a bunch of those tactics were then used in the umbrella movement, and then sort of going back before that, um, there were a series of 
um, cultural heritage protests around things like the old Queen's, Queen's Pier and Star Ferry Pier in Central, um, which engaged a lot of the more sort of culturally... Um, culturally aware um, and the beginnings of of protesters willing to directly confront police in a more aggressive fashion which sort of again fed into later movements and then going back even earlier 2003 the, the anti-article 23 protest yeah. was sort of the first big example of huge numbers of people coming onto the street and successfully stopping at the time that national security law and that was what so the article 23 were, kind of was the national security law right it was yeah it was the national security law of its time oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah and, and it was so, so that stopped. that was on the table 2017 years ago. Yeah. 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 So that's always been suppressed. Article 23 was always the thing like, they bring mm. it up, let's go out, let's go out, yeah. you know? Like, the, uh, the, the talk about a uh, fuck you. Yeah. And, and, it's and, like, and oh, that's yeah. what everyone had in mind on, on that Sunday night in June last year when, when you know, a million people came out and we said, well, this, you know, this is even more than we, we yeah. had to stop Article so 23. Clearly, and, and, do you yeah. think it reveals so, that, that the real purpose of the extradition treaty was just to be a, a de facto Article 23? Um, a kind of deliberate Trojan horse thing. I mean, I don't. Th- I don't. Well, I just mean like they wanted the law for its practical application. So, do they just call it something different? No, no. It's substantively, it was pretty different. I mean, the, the extradition law was much narrower than what we've ended up with. Yeah, um, but but if you can control whatever you know charges against a conviction is against a person, then mm. it's just a question of legally getting them across the border, right? Or am I wrong about no, that? No, you're right. You're right. But I, mean, I think the, 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 still the national security law is much worse because it, it all can happen here, and and it's um, uh, the, there's just so many more branches and, and sure, like they've set up it. the the and they got the, the office, office here. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, mean, I mean, to 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 be dragging to be using what was just the the extradition bill to take people across the border, they could still do it, but it'd be much more limited in scale, and it'd be mar- much more convoluted and complex and and there'd be much less legitimacy also the police it, couldn't so. just charge them with it on the street right, right? exactly there'd be a, there'd be a lot of proce- and they they could do it to a small number of people if they wanted to maybe each year but they couldn't do it on on scale like they can now do with a national security law um uh yeah but so but to go back to your question um so there, there's sort of where, where do we go from from here i think we need you know, there'll be again this sort of post umbrella movement period of reflection and and consolidation. The, the things that are sort of in my mind, um, on the one hand, you sort of think about the the more uh, the, the 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 bad direction that, that things could go, and people talk about you know sort of Northern Ireland comparisons, and if you know people are, are squashed by this national security law, do you get people willing to take even more extreme measures to to make their point? Um, to the government, and look, hopefully we don't go that way. But certainly there are ingredients there, and people who've you know, looked back at history of, of Northern Ireland who can see um, certain parallels of, 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 of a, at least one possible future that leads to Hong Kong going in that direction. Um, uh, I don't think, for many reasons, we, we will, and I don't think that's that's something that would be, um, I think, uh, deeply shocking and unacceptable to people. In Do you Hong know what Kong. that reminds me of, though? And it was something I caught in your book was when one of the protesters wrote, I think inside LegCo, you are the ones that taught me that yeah, peaceful protest doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. it's futile. Yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. like, Oof. That was a classic photo with this, yeah. with one of the police actually re- looking and reading it and, you know, it's written on the wall. And they're like, yeah, you got me there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that was the moment that everyone was like, yeah, you're right. You're forcing me to become this radical, right? Yeah. I think yeah. it's very true because like, I'll be honest, like I have friends who would never be this... Furious, or just consider even going all the way out. Like, 
I had friends who basically w- I was like I cannot believe that you're like padded up in your arms and you're ready to go where you need to go. Not that they actually were at the forefront, but they were like ready for it. I'm like, I He's like I'm so just cold. Shy. I just I'm not, can't, I can't handle the winter. Yeah, damn you malls <laughs> with the air conditioning, right? I'm already padded up anyway, right? No, it, it's bizarre. I mean, I can totally understand. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like it, the when they announced the anti-mask ban, that was like a moment of like, what, right? And that night, people just went nuts. And it was kind of very weirdly understood that, okay, so tonight at 12 midnight, it's going to come into effect, right, this law. So before that, let's go nuts. Let's keep our masks on. Let's have some fun. And they were trashing everywhere, right? Uh, Different stations, MTR. We already didn't like the MTR by then. So everything was getting trashed. And 11.59 p.m., whoever's watching Facebook Live would have seen. Mm. 11.59 p.m., all right, time's up. People were literally shouting, go zone, go zone. And Mm. like, boom. Everybody leaves, take the yeah. mask, throw it on the floor, and walk home. Yeah. I was like, wow. But then that weekend was when it, it, I mean, there was this expectation that there's be, there'd be this really furious reaction, right? It was like there was a typhoon coming yeah. in. I remember all the supermarket shelves were emptied. People emptied the ATMs of cash. They were kind yeah. of battening down as if the city was going to kind of explode that yeah, weekend. Yeah, which, yeah. Um, it, it didn't to a, you know, to a huge extent, but certainly there, were, there was a lot of stuff going on you yeah. know, on Saturday and Sunday. But yeah. yeah. Um, but the other thing I was going to say just in terms of where we're going from here is that, look, it's... This, the sort of the spirit of this movement or this mindset um, that was developed, this um, national identity that was built up around this movement um, is pretty widely embraced by a lot of people in Hong Kong. And if you just go by the numbers who voted in the elections last year, you know, a good 60% of the population. But if you look generationally at, say, anyone under the age of 30 or even, you know, under the age of 40 um, are, are all, you know, very... Um, you know, have a pretty uniform view of these issues. Um, and the, the government, in, in a way, has lost entire generations. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what if the government can ever win those hearts and minds yeah. back. Um, and so with all those people still here in the city, and they're just going to, you know, keep obviously gr- you know, growing up and, and, and becoming more influential and eventually becoming, you know, people of influence in the community and, and how that will change the dynamic is, will be interesting to see as well. So, yeah. One thing that I, you know... We were talking about how hard it was to figure out what's going on during the protests. And there were times when people would either say to you, this city is 100% behind the protests. And then I was like, the truth of it is, though, there there are a lot of people out there that are either, if they're not pro-Beijing, they're sort of pro-stability and accepting that Beijing are going to come in eventually. And certainly, like, it was interesting the age brackets you said, because I was what I'd heard was people talking about their parents of just being like, we're part of China. This is it. And I think that's also like a, like an age factor as well. I mean, it's very normal for a 20-year-old to be rebellious. And also they've lived year-old. through different things. Not like they've probably been so poor enough to know how bad it can go. I mean, so the argument also was like, yeah, you're 50. You got to enjoy Hong Kong at its finest. So that's why you're like, okay with it. Let's retire now. You how made your like, money. You don't yeah, want to you lose. You've got money to lose. Yeah. So actually that was one of the arguments that I think the pro-Beijing Legco guys was saying, like, how dare you guys stop me from making my money now? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was one of the guys who's like, "This is my time for my reaping all my rewards that I've been sowing all my life." So now you guys are screwing that for me. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I, what I found really interesting um, were the sort of the kind of survey results that you saw coming out during the protest last year, where they they were sort of you know, public opinion polls trying to figure out who was sort of pro government, pro police, and who was pro protester. And the pro government, pro police folks were either sort of sixty plus elderly bracket or people with only primary school education. And the people pro-protester were sort of up to age 30 
and people with uh, tertiary education or above. And so it's this kind of social division that you see kind of replicated all over the world. If the, you took the labels off that of those stats and said this is, you know, pro-Trump, anti-Trump voters or yeah. pro-Brexit, Even anti-Brexit. Even pro-police in right. the Exactly, US. right? So it's, it's a similar generational and class divide that you see here, which I just find really interesting. And I don't know what it is or even if there are any factors that overlap or it's just a coincidence. But but clearly the government had lost not only the younger generation, but the educated the middle class, right? Yeah, the people Which, that would build the city right. when they get older. Exactly. The, the kind of the driving force of this economy, of this city. It's not a manufacturing city. It's a services economy and it's all those people that, that drive it. So it's sort of a, sort of a, a pretty devastating from the government's point of view you're looking at it in purely mercenary economic terms I, well, when you say that the, the drive it I'm like well the ones driving are probably the ones with the <laughs> primary level education yeah. <laughs> literally yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah it's, it's, it's interesting that, that that kind of division is is seems to be pretty clear here and it's 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 not um, unique to here on that point of you know do, you know making comparisons around the world um, we've just found out that Biden won which is a pretty good outcome. Is that good or bad for Hong Kong? This is so bizarre for Hong Kong, right? Like, like, because uh, it's so many people in Hong Kong think it's a terrible thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this whole aspect of very strongly pro-Trump pe- people or sentiments among the Hong Kong protesters, which I just um can't quite fathom, to be it, honest. It, I mean, <laughs> exactly. So it's like a weird thing. Like four years ago, had you told me yeah, and four years later, you'd be like, you'd you'd kind of want Trump to win again. I'd be like, what? Impossible. But I think it's more because everyone's thinking, okay, Trump is willing to confront China, so we'll, we'll vote for him, regardless of his other issues. Biden seems a bit lighter on China, so we're like, I don't know. I want the guy you know, who's going to help my, my issues that we're dealing with. So we don't know what Biden will do. We really don't know. We don't feel he's going to be as strong as Trump has been on China, at least. But then again. Yeah. I well, mean, is that unfair, though, if they feel like their life is at stake? Then isn't it make doesn't it make sense to want but the that, candidate? That, but it's normal, yeah. That's that's. I'm what not saying want. they're right or wrong. I'm just yeah. saying that you know perhaps there's compassion that can be had for that. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of friends who who are pro-Trump or at least pro-Republican. I don't agree with what anyone said, but to just blanket say that they're stupid or idiots or something, I think doesn't really analyze. Yeah, look, I mean, situation properly. I think from the the Hong Kong protesters' point of view, they see the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act and the the sanctions against Carrie Lam and the other senior government officials um, and the very strong pushback. Were they helpful? Well, that's that's an, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, so they they see that as supportive of their cause, and so they sort of are, uh, you know, credit that to Trump and yeah. and his administration and see that as you know as being strong. Su- in strong voices in support of their cause. But the question you raise is a very good one. Are they helpful? You know, sanctioning Carrie Lam and other senior government officials, in my view, um, is going to only exacerbate a situation where the only people willing to take senior Hong Kong government appointments are people who are uh, basically have thrown their entire lot in with with the mainland and with Beijing because if you if you know that you take this appointment you're at risk of being you know sanctioned by the US government and cut off from the international financial system you're not going to get international cosmopolitan people you know who are open minded and and widely traveled right you're going to get people who are sort of yes people to, to Beijing and, and sort of... Is it possible yeah. to get anyone that's not yes people to Beijing anyway, at this point? At this point, yeah. It's, it's, good, <laughs> it's a good question, yeah. Um, but then similarly, the, the changing of Hong Kong's you know trade status with the US um, would seem to harm Hong Kong rather than help it. And, and yes, it, it's, it harms Hong Kong's pro-Beijing business elites, but it also hurts ordinary people and ordinary businesses potentially. So 
Um, but if you subscribe to this, um, you know, Lam Chao, you know, this, if, yeah. if you, if you we burn, burn, if we burn, burn you burn with us mindset where we're just going to like burn it all down. And there's a certain extreme um, view among the protest movement here that, you know, if we bring down Hong Kong, we may even be able to bring down, you know, the entire Communist Party rule over, over all of China. And it's sort of, that's the mindset that is sort of driving this sentiment towards, okay, yeah, let's just. Well, just but ironically, kind of it seems yeah. like the Communist Party also thinks that. Right? They, how afraid are they of the perception of the protesters being successful? So I think... To me, it seems pretty clear, and it's not just a ch- Communist Party thing. I mean, Putin's the same. Is like they don't want to see parallel victories that could speak to the ears of, you know, the people in the mainland. I guess it just shows weakness. I mean, that, like, it kind of shows, you know, you're unable to control your own uh, people. But to me, it's such a vulnerable perspective, right? And I say that as a, uh, essentially layperson, but, but, but I just, it's a little ironic to me that to, it's easy to say these extremist point of view is so far-fetched, but it's like, but hang on, the, yeah. the powerful opponent also thinks that. Yeah. They're also very concerned about the implications of a successful campaign here. Uh, okay, but yeah, I think they're, well, they're concerned about the protest movement being seen as successful. I don't think they're concerned by the measures the US is taking against them. I, mean, I think Beijing will just plow on. Sure, okay, yeah. My point, though, was not that, moving away from the Biden point a little right. bit, but just to speak to that point of oh, the okay. significance the, the, the idea that a, yeah. that a victory here could topple the mainland, the significance of it, I mean, how many protests are there in the mainland, but they just never get covered, right? Yeah, yeah. And they don't, they don't connect up, and that's sort of one of the, the key things. They, they're never allowed to communicate and form alliances. Um, but look, certainly the, the, you know, the, the government in the mainland don't want there to be an impression that um, you know, people on the street can change policy or that, that the government is responsive to voices on the street. But also, I think they um, are, over, are being overly fragile in the sense that you know there's no sign that there was any sympathy or support for the hong kong protesters across the border in the mainland and there was sort of no no chance that you'd get sympathetic protests or sort of you know pr- protests feeding off the hong kong protests breaking out in the mainland and, and and control over information and society in the mainland is so tight that um i don't think the protests in hong kong ever would p- pose a genuine threat to to party rule over over China um, in any way until um, we like start sending messages in mooncakes yeah. <laughs> or pigeons we're gonna go back For- fortune school. cookies oh that's gonna be the, the West infiltrating the thinking <laughs> that's a Trojan horse right yeah, there yeah you don't want that <laughs> um, well, Etsy, thank you so much for coming out today. I, I, I've, it's been awesome. Yeah, it's been a real big learning experience. And I, I re- almost finished uh, City on Fire, and I'm loving it. I'm going to get City of Protest next. So thank um, you. Yeah, thanks for reading. Highly recommended if anyone wants to check it out.